in the early Buddhist discourses, the, the discourses that re- record the teachings that the historical Buddha was, was giving when he was alive. One of the things that he really emphasized as a foundation for everybody was living ethically. If we're not living ethically, we're always going to be uneasy because there's always something that can catch up with us in the next moment as a consequence for the things that we do that are harmful, either to ourselves or others. Phil Jones has practiced meditation since 1987. His early formation was grounded in the Zen tradition, but in 1992 he began practicing in the Insight tradition and has been teaching Insight meditation since 1996. He graduated from the Spirit Rock Meditation Center's Community Dharma Leader Program in 2000. For a number of years he studied with Matthew Flickstein and more recently with Shyla Catherine. He has served on the board of directors of Mid-America Dharma, a regional retreat organization since the mid-90s. Phil is also the founder of Silent Mind, Open Heart Sangha in Columbia, Missouri, and many of his talks and writings can be found at silentmindopenheart.org. He also teaches at Show Me Dharma, which can be found at showmedharma.org. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are eligible for a free month of training using the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. Phil, you are one of the founding uh, members, teachers of Show Me Dharma, Show Me being a name for the the state of Missouri. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what it's like to teach about Buddhism, about the path of liberation as outlined by the Buddha in the Midwest. And we're so used to hearing from teachers and California or New York or Colorado, we don't hear a lot about what it's like in Missouri. And uh, just curious about your experience with that. Well, when I first began practicing, um, there were very, very few resources available. I can remember going to one of the local bookstores and I think there were uh, two books on Buddhism available. So, so when I, I first practiced, uh, I, I stumbled across 
I live in a college town, and I stumbled across a, um, a little Zen group that met on one of the college campuses. And so that's that was really my first actual introduction to practice. Uh, it was a uh, sit down and face the wall kind of experience. Not a lot of instruction beyond that. I had the good fortune to uh, live in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years, um, 89 to, to 91. And uh, at that time, I was practicing uh, with a Zen group there and did get a little more instruction about practice. Uh, but by the time I ended that, and moved back to the Midwest, I was pretty clear that um, I was a little more interested in what insight meditation uh, had to offer than the Zen tradition. And I, I came upon a group called Mid-America Dharma that uh, put on retreats once or twice a year. And in order to learn how to practice in, insight meditation, at that point, you, you really had to go on one of those retreats. There was no one locally uh, who was teaching. There were no local groups at that time. So I, I did that for a number of years, and that's how I got involved with uh, in America Dharma and sponsoring, helping to sponsor retreats. And so... You were raised. Were you raised in Missouri? I, I was or? raised in Missouri. I I uh, grew up the biggest part of my childhood, about thirty miles from where I live now. So, how did you find the Dharma then? If there wasn't much, did did you just hear about it from people, or actually, I was working as a psychotherapist. My my original training as a psychotherapist was. Uh, very much focused on sitting down and listening to people and not providing very much direction, not being able to offer much in terms of skills they might develop and be able to use in their lives. So after I did that for a few years, I started looking around and uh, especially trying different things to help people deal with anxiety and depression. And eventually I came upon, um, I can't remember the, the guy's name, he was a, a physician uh, at Harvard who was doing uh, some things with stress uh, and using meditation for it. It, it was before John Kabat-Zinn. And uh, I thought, oh, meditation. Well, that's a little far out, especially for the Midwest. But um, <laughs> you know, maybe there's maybe there's something there that would be of help. And then I thought, this is the Midwest. Before I start suggesting that people do this, I really need to try it myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so that's when I found this small Zen group, and um, I can't say I had a lot of 
success in sharing the practice with my clients at that time. But uh, I started meditating myself on a daily basis. And it really, uh, it really answered something that I didn't even know I was looking for. You know, I've kind of always wanted to ask this question from someone who's a practicing psychologist or psychiatrist. So you work with people with this this process, this uh, a talk therapy, if you will, of some form, and then you have these people who are also practitioners, and I'm just wondering how. Not that they're complementary, but how, what the practice of, of the you know in the Buddhist tradition, how that's differing from the the therapy in terms of trying to work with the wholeness of a person. Is that too obscure a question? I, I'm not really sure. I just it's it's not. It, I think it's a very pertinent question that a lot of people. Uh, try to understand, try to make sense of. I, I do want to say at the beginning that I haven't practiced as a psychotherapist since uh, 1999. So it's, it's been quite a while. Uh, but, you know, as a, um, as a psychotherapist, you're dealing with a person's immediate circumstances, their, uh, the story that they have about that, the story that they're living and perceiving their life through. And I don't mean the story in a pejorative kind of way. Uh, it's, you know, it's the particular view that they bring to their experience. And so that's, in a lot of ways, that's the medium that the psychotherapist is working with. Uh, and of course, in meditation practice, uh, we, be, we often begin in those, those same kinds of places, but um, we're really working not just to kind of loosen up and broaden the story or the perspective we have on our life, but um, to really kind of see through that story. And, and so, you know, those are, those are I, I guess, at least one of the differences that I would see in the two approaches. You have this um, excellent series on, um, on the website, uh, silentmindopenheart.org, uh, that you, you call the twinning vines of awakening. And what was so wonderful about that series of talks that you gave is you, you know, please help me uh, with the metaphor just so I don't, you know, <laughs> if I botch it up, but you, you talked about these twinning vines, one that's this personal process of awakening to one's own life and, and to, to life in general. And then the process as outlined by the, the, Buddhist path of, um, you know, no essential 
non-essentialism, sort of a path of purification, where there's this process of increasing renunciation and letting go. And so you, you, it's almost like you're getting to know yourself and also to let go of yourself at the same time. Right. And I, I found it really uh, brilliant. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about your own journey through that pra- that process in practice, and then how you help others sort of hold those two, which seem almost contradictory, right? Coming to know yourself as this thing, and then also saying, "Well, there is no thing there," or, but maybe I'm I'm sort of botching <laughs> botching how you teach it. So I'll I'll let you say it. First, the way I think of the metaphor is actually as twining vines. So the idea that there's these two aspects of our lives that twine around each other uh-huh. as as we move through time, and they do they do inform uh, each other as as we live and as as we do these practices. One of the um, things that has come up for me recently, I'm, I'm going to be 70 in a few months, and a lot of my friends are already uh, 70 or older. And all of us are, are kind of coming up against the reality of what it is to have bodies that have been around for 70 years. Um, for me, it's it's just minor things at this point. Uh, I'm starting to get some arthritis. Uh, I have a fair complexion, and um, the sun exposure I had as a child is starting to catch up with me. I get to go visit the dermatologist a lot more frequently nowadays because of that. But uh, others of my friends um, are finding that their joints aren't working as well as they used to, and, and maybe they are having to at least think about possibly having them replaced, or, um, or their, um, their nerves are being impinged by uh, arthritis and deformities that have developed in the body, and sometimes they're experiencing really excruciating pain and uh, having to find ways of living with that. So so there's there's this just human reality that uh, I think all of us that get to be this age, and many of us who, many people experience these things at younger ages as well. Um, but it's a human reality that, that sooner or later we all have to encounter. Um, and how does the practice help us with that? How does it, uh, it inform that ability to be with that? And in the insight meditation uh, practice tradition, our, one of our main practices comes from a, an early discourse called the Satipatthana Sutta. And it's... Uh, it's translated as the four establishments of mindfulness. 
there's a whole series of different exercises within that sutta that allow us to uh, work with, to develop mindfulness uh, in relationship to different aspects of our experience, our bodies, uh, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral uh, experiences we have, um, our thoughts, the mind states, the emotions that we experience. And what I, as I have reflected on turning 70 and thinking about my practice, one of the things that has struck me is how doing these Satipatthana practices uh, over the years, again and again and again, it's part of one's daily practice, really, uh, how it, it prepares one and gives one the skills and uh, also helps one to develop the courage just to be present with what is happening in the body, in the mind, right now. Uh, and so I'm hoping, at least, and so far I've found, but I'm hoping that as my body continues to, um, to age and get more cranky, that uh, the practice will support me in just being able to be with this experience and have some ease with it rather than struggling with it and really suffering uh, with it beyond the pain that is, is just part of it anyway. And, you know, I've, I've seen other friends and acquaintances who don't practice and who are uh, struggling and suffering at this point. So I see, I see the practices as being a real support in that kind of a way. In one of your talks, you speak about two dimensions that are really necessary for uh, this path. And one, the first one, is um, not that surprising, I think, to a lot of people. It's that you feel like there's some need for uh, some degree of distress, that there has to be some sense of suffering, either, you know, an experience of inquietude or of real pain for people to engage in this process. And then the other one, which I was, I, th I feel like this is the first time I've ever heard someone say this, is that you feel like there's a a need for a basic ability to lead an ethical and compassionate life. And I was kind of struck by that, your second point. And I'm wondering why you add that second point. Well, the, the first reason I do is uh, in, in the uh, early Buddhist discourses, the, the discourses that re record uh, the teachings that the historical Buddha was, was giving when he was alive. Uh, one of the things that he really emphasized as a foundation for everybody was living ethically. Uh, 
if if we're not living ethically, we're always going to be uneasy because there's always something that can catch up with us in the next moment uh, as a consequence for the things that we do that are harmful, uh, either to ourselves or others. And if, if we think of the practice primarily as meditation, which is kind of a contemporary view of it, uh, it's, it's not the way it was taught in early Buddhism. Uh, but if we think of the meditative component and, and people wanting to start out there or wanting to engage in meditation, if we sit down and we get quiet and we start opening up to um, our hearts and our minds, our lives uh, that we've lived and are living, uh, if we're living in ways where we're hurting others or we're hurting ourselves, it's going to be right there in front of us. It's going to come up in our minds again and again. And, uh, and we have to develop an ability to be with that, to see that, to ex experience uh, for ourselves the pain that that causes, both for ourselves and others. Uh, and so in order to be, in order to have some success, with the practice, it's really necessary from my perspective that one make an effort to live in an ethical way. It, you know, it's it's not that one has to be uh, a saint, but uh, there's these five basic precepts we have of uh, not taking the lives of other living beings, and not taking what hasn't been given. And um, not in, in engaging, not using our sexuality in ways that are harmful to ourselves or others. Being careful with our speech, not using speech to harm. And then not using substances that cloud the mind, because when we use substances that cloud the mind, we're more likely to do the other things that are harmful as well. So that's kind of that's kind of the basis. That's kind of the foundation that uh, I see people having to either start out with or to develop. And lots of people come to practice and they already have that foundation and build upon it. And other people, there's aspects of their lives where uh, you know there's there's some pretty strong deficits uh, ethically and. So those are things they have to work on as as they go along, as well as uh, as just being present with their lives as they are. And do you find that as a teacher, that's something you engage with with students, or is it more like you give a talk about it and you sort of leave it up to them to decide whether they're 
um, walking the path or, I mean, because ultimately we're talking about getting on the path of liberation to, to, to end the cycle of suffering. And I'm just wondering how engaged you get with people about this second point of, because uh, who actually gets to define what an ethical life looks right. like? Right. I mean, I have an opinion, <laughs> but, but you know, my people feel differently uh, yeah. all over. So, but, you know, those, those five, uh, five trainings, ethical trainings that I, I mentioned, um, in our tradition, we call them the five precepts, but those are things that uh, we have to investigate for ourselves. Mm-hmm. What what does it mean to me at this point in my life to um, not take the life of another living being? Does right. it just mean don't kill another person, or does it mean uh, don't swat the mosquito that's buzzing around my ear. Right. And so really that's that's the way I talk about it. That's the way I present it. It's not um, that it's not like there's certain commandments that, that you have to follow uh, and be sin free. But rather these are things you need to look at. These are areas that are going to lay the foundation for your ability to be at peace with yourself and Mm -hmm. to create peace in your relationships with other people. Um, And so it's an ongoing practice for all of us. Uh, No matter where we are on the path, uh, we still need to be paying attention to to these things, to the effects that our behaviors have on ourselves and others. So I, I, it's, it would be very rare that I would call somebody out and say, uh, this is, what you're doing is really unethical and you really need to clean this up. Although there have been times when I've done that. Mm-hmm. I really loved that, that uh, thought or that, um, sort of advice, partly because I think when we give instruction about um, engaging with the path, yep, the the precepts for sure are there, but often it feels very sort of technical in terms of like that insight will come if you engage in the techniques well enough. What I'm sort of intuiting and maybe I'm wrong about this, but from your perspective, also insight comes when you're really trying to work on the ethical dimension of your life as well. Or am I reading that wrong? Yes. I, I think that insight does come from um, working on the ethical dimension. You know, we, have, we develop insights into the fact that our actions do have consequences. Um, which is is a, a quick summary of the idea of karma or karma. What what we do, what we think, what we say has consequences, and uh, so we need to pay attention to whether the things that we're doing and saying lead to 
more unsatisfactoriness, stress, suffering for ourselves and others, but whether they lead to peace and kindness and goodwill and uh, to liberation, to being able to live with ease and uh, freedom from uh, the violence. Mm -hmm. At one point, you talk about personal awakening, which, you know, at another place, I heard you say that it was, you know, you defined the personal awakening as awakening to your own life. And I'm not sure that, or, or I actually, I think you called it the, the process of becoming an authentic human being is more than just a sense of uh, mindfulness. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about what you mean by that process of becoming an authentic human being as as created, developed, encountered through this through this path. I'm suspecting that it's slightly different than how you guided people as a as a psychotherapist. What comes to mind is that the teachings, the Buddhist teachings, actually play a big role in this process. The Noble Eightfold Path begins with right view or right understanding. And, you know, initially that has to do with just intellectually getting some idea of even the most basic principles of karma um, that I mentioned earlier, our actions have consequences. Uh, having the idea that there is dukkha, there is unsatisfactoriness, stress, and suffering in our lives, that that's just part of the nature of, of living. That also there are causes and conditions for why dukkha arises, why there is unsatisfactoriness, stress, and suffering arising. That there's a way out. And that there are things that we can do that uh, lead us to an ability to live fully present with our lives the part about being an authentic human being, uh, to be fully present with our lives and to be, um, to be free from adding more suffering to our lives than that which simply comes from being a human being on this earth. So there's... So, you know, there's a process of trying to understand these teachings and applying them to one's own life and kind of using them as a um, as the window through which we look at what we're experiencing in our lives and the window through which we look at what's going on in our practice as we engage in meditation or anything else that we do. 
So I would see, I would see that as really uh, an important aspect uh, that needs to be there, along with with learning what it is to be mindful, uh, developing the skills to be able to be mindful with different aspects of our experience, but then uh, the teachings help us to begin to look at experience, to ask questions, to explore uh, what we're encountering in ways that help us draw wisdom from our own experience. So I am imagining that even though it's 2019, the teachings of the Buddha uh, in the Midwest are probably still not as as common as they are in you know California or Boston. And I'm wondering when you begin the conversation with people who are curious about the path, do you start with your own life? Do you start with the teachings of the Buddha? How do you how do you begin that conversation with them? When I first begin talking with people about the practice, I I often actually begin with the first noble truth, with the idea that in each and every one of our lives, stress, unsatisfactoriness, suffering is a reality that we have to deal with. And that the way that we deal with it has an effect on how much additional stress and suffering we experience in our lives. I often will talk about the fact that over the years that I've practiced, I do feel like my life has been transformed and much more at ease with myself and with my life now than I was um, in the late 1980s when I first sat down to meditate. Some of that could just be a result of aging, but I do think a lot of it comes from the practice and, and just finding that there, there's a guidance and there's instructions and there's support. Uh, there's skills that can be developed that allow one, help one, guide one um, to living in ways that allow one to be more at peace with things as they are, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. life as it is. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Phil Jones encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can learn more by visiting silentmindopenheart.org. There you will find a number of Phil's talks and articles, as well as a retreat and practice schedule. If you have any questions, you can reach him at phil at silentmindopenheart.org. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of training 
which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of membership, please visit quantumzenonline.org and use the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I am your host, Ian Whitemar, and I hope you'll join me again next week. Thank you.